Dotnet Rocks episode 764 with guest Ted Neward. Recorded live Friday, April 20th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your .NET pleasure. Hey, Richard. I'm looking for some .NET pleasure. Aren't we all? Aren't we Really, all? that's what it comes down to. Definitely. We just want a little pleasure. I'm always having a good time, though. Yep. So, let's jump right into Better Know Framework. All right. Not feeling particularly Gabby today for some No? I don't know. Maybe I had a late night rehearsing the band. Ah, yes. I'm going to come and see you play, actually. 11-piece band. So, our horn section, four pieces. Yep. They have their own name. You know how horn sections have, you know, like the Violent Femmes had the Horns of Dilemma, and Bruce Springsteen, he's gotten, you know, his... So, our, our horn section is the Brass Souls. Right. The brass holes, if you say it quick. <laughs> <laughs> They're Don't awesome. say it too fast. Be All careful. Right. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, you know, I always like to go looking for stuff that's appropriate to our guest. And the, I think the most appropriate uh, thing I could point to on the internet is Ted Neward's recent blog post, Unlearn Young Programmer, uh-huh. which is, uh, you know, just stories of some crazy stuff that people have done. Um, and Ted's going to talk about it, but in particular, uh, a, a shop that used social security numbers as primary keys in their database for users. Oh boy. Yikes. That's a bad idea. So anyway, you can read this great post and we're going to talk a little bit to Ted about this and other things at tinyurl.com slash unlearn young programmer. Nice. Richard, who's talking to us? grabbed a comment off of show 756 and it's a comment we actually have to think about this is that was the show with bart Dismet when we talked about reactive extensions version 2 yes and this comment comes from paulo villa uh who says uh it's been a very great episode i look forward to using together silverlight 5 async and reactive extensions from what I've heard, async won't be available in Studio 2010, and as a line of business developer, I think these technologies are not only useful for Windows RT, but also for complex data grid applications. Are we repeating the story of Java or .NET Everywhere with mm. HTML5 and JavaScript? Mm. Okay, now, first off, I would say little ESL there, but we won't hold that against them. Nope. I, I think there's a couple of confused points, too, Paulo. Uh, first problem, I don't think you can use async and await with Silverlight 5. Uh don't know. Yeah, that, that, that may that, be true. That's one of the features that didn't make it in, and one of the things that people have been pushing on about why there should be another version past Silverlight 5 is we didn't get async and await. Which seems silly to me, actually. Yeah. So that's your first problem. But reactive extensions definitely work with Silverlight 5, but that's, you know, different can of worms working a different way around. Mm-hmm. Async is part of .NET 4.5, so yes, you'll need the next version of Visual Studio, although theoretically you could use the old version of Visual Studio with the new version of the .NET framework, but it doesn't matter. Right now you can download Studio 11, which I believe will eventually be called Studio 2012, they just haven't decided on that yet, which will come with 4.5, and you can download it today as a beta, but you don't have to run it in WinRT mode, it'll build perfectly good 
ordinary applications and certainly work with async and reactive extensions and presumably Silverlight 2, although admittedly I haven't tried it. But again, async not available in Silverlight 5. And are we yep. repeating the story of HTML5 and JavaScript? Uh, I think that's a different thing entirely. Uh, .NET doesn't feel like it gets a lot of love in WinRT, but that's only because it is the de facto standard development on Windows, and C++ and the whole HTML5 chakra thing needed to come up. So uh, Microsoft, I think, has built three different development stacks for us to work from, and you can pick the one you like. And, uh, you know, of the three, I- I'm going to stay with C Sharp. I'm yep. pretty happy there. There's good things. Good stuff. But hey, Paulo, thanks for your uh, your message. And I'm um, sending you out a .NET Rocks mug. So if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. Pick your show, write your comment. If we read it on the air, you'll get a mug. And with that, I need to tell you about our awesome partner, Pluralsight. They provide comprehensive developer training videos online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as appear on our show. They release 10 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes to their vast library. Pluralsight offers 20 courses on ASP.NET development, and they have several courses dedicated to understanding security, including ADFS2 and WIF 3.5, as well as a new course on hack-proofing your ASP.NET sites. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let's introduce our good friend, the dude, Ted Neward. Ted is an architectural consultant for NewDesic, specializing in high-scale enterprise systems, working with clients ranging in size from Fortune 500 corps to small 10-person shops. He is an authority in Java and .NET technologies, particularly in the areas of Java and .NET integration, both in-process and via integration tools like web services. Also, back-end enterprise software systems and virtual machine and execution engine plumbing. Welcome back, Ted. Hey, Carl. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's been a long time since we talked to you. You used to be one of the most frequented .NET Rocks guests, and it's been a while. Yeah, I know. What happened? You guys, you guys, you guys stopped calling me. You never call. You never write. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead to you. Yeah. Well, we'd like to talk to our old friends, but there's so much going on in the world that uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned, you know, blog posts that I've written. One that I wrote uh, a couple of months ago was, 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 you know, was perceived by a lot of people as, as being particularly negative, but basically saying, hey, you know, where's the, where, where's the excitement? Where's the fun? Where's the, you know, what, what's going on out here that doesn't feel like, technology, you know, warmed over. I know we stopped doing the joke at the in, at the beginning of the show, but I didn't realize it would have such a massive impact on the whole psyche of the .NET community. No, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> people tell us we don't joke anymore, so oh, well, we're too serious. Yeah. So where's the fun? Where, what happened? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's... The, the 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 post itself was basically kind of you know I kind of kind of feel like you know a lot of this stuff is stuff that we've you know we've done before and part of it was just feeling like there's a general malaise, particularly in the .NET community, but I mean you know even as well in the Java community, you know there's there's just a lot of it seems to be the same stuff different day, 
right? I mean, mm. you know, right now there's there's all the discussion around, and this goes to your to your commenter's point. You know, there's there's a certain amount of of Microsoft kind of feels like they're abandoning .NET in some ways. Um, you know, because they're pushing Metro and WinRT and so forth. Which, of really, course, isn't true. Well, it's not true, but at the same time, you look at the .NET 4.5 release, and you got to ask yourself, I mean, what what's exciting here? Right? There's async and await. Wait a minute. Async and await is freaking exciting. That's a game-changing technology. I can't tell if you're being serious. I am that. being serious. I'm totally no. serious. No. no. Async and await completely lowers the bar to do really seriously complex multi-threaded programming where it wouldn't have even been attempted before. See, and I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, it lowers the bar to do certain kinds of asynchronous stuff. But, you know, when, when Mods was, was talking about async and await, you know, one of, during a, an SDR a couple of years ago, you know, one of the questions came up, you know, is this basically a, a general purpose concurrency programming tool? And his response was, well, you know, it's gonna, it, it's designed to enable certain kinds of concurrency. Namely, this is designed to allow, you know, user interface to be more responsive to users, right? It becomes much easier to spin off a thread to go, you know, act, perform some action on behalf of user. Yeah. Without the developer having to worry about managing all of the communication across threads and so forth. And, you know, in that, sure. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's awesome. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate the feature itself. Yeah. Let me answer to that, though. Um, I, I, I see async in a way as covering the 99% of multi-threading problems in business software. And that is, we have some tasks that need to complete sequentially. First, I need to do this, then I need to do that, then I need to do this, then I need to do that. Then we have a lot of these things going on, at least two, obviously. And we want to wrap it all up nicely when it's all done. But that, I think, solves 99% of the problems in business software anyway. The other 1% is the the guys that are doing sort of multi-threaded driver style, really low level, you know, going around and looking at, at things that are happening and locking and uh, you know, a lot of processes that happen simultaneously that don't necessarily have a series of steps but that need to react logically to things that are happening. I think that's where async and await, you know, don't even touch it. But honestly, I don't see that kind of software being developed every day. Well, I think we're getting, we're getting more and more of that stuff. I mean, I'm not sure I agree with the 99 and 1% numbers here, but, it, you know, there's clearly a statistical majority in terms of people who are doing, you know, using concurrency for the UI responsiveness thing. Agreed. Um, the uh the 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 numbers of folks who are trying to do you know like actually trying to uh, openly parallelize their code let's let's call it that those numbers i think are going up because you know for example you get into some of the services discussions and people are needing to make calls to multiple services you know as part of an http request and so forth i don't want to allow the statement async and await is a general purpose threading construct I don't want that to go by on challenge because I really don't think it is. I think it's designed for particular use case scenarios, which I think Microsoft... Which are, I, I mean, you got to admit, those are the majority use cases. Now, they are the majority use cases. The problem is, I think it solves the problem today. I'm not sure it solves problems that we're going to have tomorrow. Um, and 
above and beyond that, right? Again, I don't, I don't necessarily want to, you know, I don't want to suggest that async and await are a terrible feature. I'm not saying they are. But I'm saying beyond that, right? I mean, if you look at previous .NET releases, when we got release two, there were like half a dozen language features. When we got release three, there were another half a dozen language features. And I'm just speaking to C Sharp here. Um, and, you know, alongside that, we got, you know, numerous new libraries. When we got four, we got dynamic. We got, uh, you know, all the TPL stuff. We got contracts and so forth. And with this release, we get async and await and, and the crickets chirp, right? There's just, there's just not anything beyond that. Yeah. But it is a 0.5 release too. You know, 3.5 was basically cleaning up the mistakes of three. So 4.5 is really making stuff work in Metro and, and a, a few features that were basically ready to go. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, makers of Telerik Open Access. You're just about to start another huge .NET project aiming to deliver a high-performing data access application in the shortest term possible. One way to go is wisely allocate a few weeks of dev time in the project plan to create a robust hand-coded data access layer, or there's always the easy way out. You can save yourself tons of development and testing time and focus on the business logic that your customers demand. Here's Telerik Open Access ORM, the tool that takes care of the data access layer of your app so you don't have to. Open Access ORM generates all the code you need in just a few points and clicks through a powerful visual designer and works with all popular databases and .NET platforms on the market. Download a free trial at Telerik.com slash OpenAccessRocks and get instant control of your data. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I mean, we we were very high on the the excitement when .NET was being developed because it was new, it was exciting, and it was solving problems that we've had for years. Those problems are solved. And I don't mean that it's done. I said that before, and somebody wrote in, you know, .NET is not done. Okay. But but it's pretty freaking good, right? It's really it's amazing to me that, you know, with, with Link and with all the features that we have, now Microsoft is going in another direction, and because there's not anything new and hyper amazing in .NET doesn't mean that it's going away, and it doesn't mean that Microsoft is... I mean, that to me seems very reactionary. It seems like, oh, there's no flashy lights shining over here in the .NET world. Oh, they must be abandoning it. No, it's awesome. Use it. No, no, no. There's, 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 a, lot, there's a big distance between they're not releasing new features and they're abandoning it. Sure. Well, I mean, you said earlier it seems like Microsoft is abandoning .NET. Uh, it seems like. That doesn't mean they are. I'm, my point is there are a lot of people out there who feel like that. Right? I've heard this comment. That, that Which, of course, is not true. Again, I'll say that. Well, Microsoft is not abandoning .NET. At least there's no indications that they are. You know, I mean, who knows what's, what's going on in Steve Ballmer's head. Um, but at the same time, I can, you know, there's definitely... Uh, uh, this, this feeling of, you know, wow, there's just, there's nothing new here. There's nothing interesting here. There's nothing. I, I've heard that from a number of folks. And have you we know, also heard that in the Java space as well? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And to a certain degree, some of that will change with Java 8. But I mean, mm-hmm. the Java 7 release, if you're a Java programmer, I can tell you everything that's new in Java 7 in about a half an hour. Right. And the language features that they introduced there, you know, a couple of them were like, really? 
this is what we get. This is this is what we're supposed to get excited about. Now, Java 8, Oracle has done some things in its corporate history that I think it's not proud of. But one of the smartest things they've done, and I admit to a high degree of bias here, but one of the smartest things they've done is they put Brian Getz, uh, who's the author of Java Concurrency and Practice, and a friend of mine, they put him in charge of the Java language. He is now the Anders equivalent over in Java. Wow. And Brian's got some very strong ideas, visions about how to evolve the Java language to incorporate, you know, Java 8 will have closures and they'll have, you know, what they're calling defender methods, which are very similar to extension methods and so forth. And so if you're a Java guy, you know, the current release may not be all that exciting, but the following release, you know, that, that kind of, that at least gets the blood stirring a little bit. And, and Oracle definitely seems very invested in the Java environment and so forth. You know, it, but just there's this, there's this general sense that I had when I wrote this that was just, you know, wow, I don't, I, I it's, it's hard to see, you know, what's new and exciting going on in programming. And, and believe you me, right, the, the, you know, kind of like you guys reacted just now, there was a ton of comments that showed up uh, on that particular blog post basically saying, dude, what are you smoking? We've got Node.js, we've got NoSQL, we've got all this other stuff. <laughs> you know, this is where the excitement is. And, you know, okay, I can see that people, the people who've never seen Ruby before will get excited about Node.js, right? I mean, you know, the 20-somethings are getting excited about something just like 10 years ago, the 20-somethings got excited about something just like 10 years ago, the 20-somethings got excited about something. <laughs> but I keep looking at this and kind of going, you know, I mean, JavaScript is not new, right? You know, I, I remember when we were doing JavaScript on the server, except we were calling it LiveScript, and it was a proprietary thing from Netscape. And then I remember when, when you know, it was suggested that we do JavaScript on the server, it was called Phobos, and it was a research project from Sun, and now all of a sudden, because Google has suggested we do Java on the server, it must be good. I mean, it just, you know, it's kind of like, what? But I also exactly? think that JavaScript evolved. The bigger thing here is that the, the, uh, the parsers and the compilers are dramatically better. And then you mix mm -hmm. in the tooling around it to manage a dynamic language properly and better testing infrastructures. And suddenly this programming approach makes more sense than it did in the past. Except when it does. <laughs> That's part of what, what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, in, in some respects, I'm, I'm asking myself the question that, that, you know, fashion houses ask on, 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 you know, on Fifth Avenue, right? What causes a thing to pop? What causes a thing to become fashionable? Why is JavaScript now? I mean, the language itself has not really changed all that much no. since its initial releases from Netscape. Right. And, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing because the initial JavaScript release was just, you know, it was, it was hacked together over a weekend for crying out loud. Um, but what, why is it popping now? I mean, is it really the, you know, the asynchronous programming model that, that Node.js is trying to espouse? Well, that could be, except that wouldn't explain, you know, all of the, the love that JavaScript is getting inside of the browser. Is it the event-driven I.O. bits? Well, yeah, but, I mean, servers have been doing event-driven I.O. For, for any number of years. They just, you know, in some cases they weren't exposing you to it. And 
Node kind of seems to be taking a step backwards in the sense that you as a developer, you don't necessarily explicitly think about threads, but at the same time, don't do a whole lot on this main thread. Be sure to fire it off on this other, you know, closure. Call. Hey, really, this is, this is what people got excited about. This is what people, you know, gets people's hearts racing and so forth. You know, it, I think, I think at a certain point in your career, you know, after you've been doing this stuff for, for 20 plus years, you have a tendency to kind of look at the thing that's coming out and going, oh yeah, I remember when we did this. I don't understand why everybody's getting all excited. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, the grumpy old man on the porch. Hey, you kids, get off of my lawn. You sound like it too. Stop using that dynamic language crap. (laughs) You sound like it too. Yeah, well, but, but part of the thing is, you know, I know, I know that there's a lot of people who kind of go, you know, dude, you're, you're, you're just, you're just old, you're grumpy, you know, you still want to go back and program in C++ and, you know, ah. but I think there's merit to that too, which is to say, look, if, if, if there's a substantive difference between JavaScript today versus JavaScript of 20 years ago, and maybe it is that the interpreters are faster, maybe it is that we just have faster hardware, maybe it is whatever, that's fine. But what I want to understand is the underlying principles, right? What makes a thing you know, what makes a thing take off? What makes a thing not take off? Because if we could figure that out, then people can make much better choices in terms of what technologies to adopt and which ones not to. Because that's the big thing right now. But I do think you have to look at the ecosystem as a whole. You know, admittedly, JavaScript, the language hasn't changed much, but the ecosystem it functions in has. The horsepower of the machines it runs in has. Mm. The tooling we wrap around it has. So that all of the weaknesses that had us discard JavaScript as a significant programming language 10 years ago have been compensated for. But see, I'm not sure that's true, Richard, because, you know, granted the machines, I mean, certainly the desktop machines are faster today. Granted, no, no argument there. But compare, you know, the desktop machines of 10 years ago with the mobile phones of today, right? And I think that's a much, much closer comparison. More importantly, you know, the reason we discarded JavaScript you know, 10 to 15 years ago, at least, at least in terms of the companies that I was working for at the time doing web apps, was because it was considered a security risk. It was because it was considered somehow, you know, it was considered non-standard. It was, it was, you know, the DOMs were different across these different browsers. They were. And one, one theory says, well, now we have libraries that eliminate those, those differences. So maybe yeah. that's it. I'm, I'm not sure. I just think it's, it's an interesting problem to ask without, you know, it's an interesting question to ask, it's an interesting problem to discuss, hopefully without some of the, you know, you're just you're just old and grumpy, you know, without some of the negative connotations that surround it. Because I do think that this is, this is an important discussion, because does this mean that Ruby and Rails are now dead, or is there some aspect to Node.js that Ruby and Rails missed, or is this just literally the next generation of programmers rejecting the technology of the previous generation of programmers because that to some degree that's kind of what it feels like well and and then you know i look at node for the perspective of suddenly it feels like we're tired of the baggage that's wrapped around iis that the we've built up this infrastructure in web servers that's so heavy and we just sort of distilling down to the essence i just want to do this one thing get all that other stuff out of the way i I don't think the comparison between node and ruby are, are really related you know well 
But at the same time, you know, one of the things we're seeing now is is Ruby and Rails running on, you know, running in larger and larger servers, providing more and more functionality. And again, one of the arguments is, you know, why do you want to do Node.js? Because it's small, it's clean, it's elegant. You don't have all that additional crap bloatware that surrounds Ruby and Rails. And you tend to have these sort of snapbacks, right? That it's, okay, we've built up too much cruft. Let's clean the slate and go again with just the bare things we need. And then we start building more and more functionality until it reaches the point of being bloatware and we reject the thing as a whole and start over. Yep. And, 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 you know, is it any wonder why I feel like we're just kind of going around and around and around on a hamster wheel? I, I just feel like we're getting smarter each time we do that, that we actually distill down more of the essence of what's important. You know, Ruby demonstrated uh, to the world that a really dynamic language can build good software quickly given mm-hmm. tooling and some discipline. Mm-hmm. And where, you know, other dynamic languages had largely failed because they didn't have the tooling and the discipline. And we blamed the dynamic language rather than saying, hey, you know, if we wrap this in the right package, we can make this work. Ultimately, it's all about the compiler and what the compiler does with that language, which I think is what you're saying. Hey, hey, Ted, can I uh, uh, take, ask you to take off your boxing gloves for a second and uh, oh, sure. uh, talk about this, this story that you blogged about um, with the social security numbers, which is just in 2012 just seems like amazing to me. But I guess you're saying this, this happened in the 90s, but still, tell me. Well, I would love to say that this was a, that this was a, a, a historical lesson that, that, you know, that this happened back then and, and <laughs> nobody would ever do this. But you know what? I keep running across people that are doing this. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a general misunderstanding around, you know, uh, around social security numbers amongst Americans, which I think perpetuates this particular myth, the idea that the social security number is somehow a unique identifier. And I think everybody realizes, well, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to openly admit that we're using social security numbers inside of our software, you know, as some form of identifier. There's still a fair number of folks. And, you know, I shouldn't say folks, because that implies that developers are doing this deliberately. I think a lot of this is, um, a lot of this has to do with, with legacy systems and so forth. Mm-hmm. But there are still people who are, you know, yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll identify these people and, and we're going to need their social security number anyway, so let's use that as a, as a primary key identifier. Mm-hmm. We'll never show them that on, on the web page, of course. But, you know, it, it keeps cropping up. It keeps coming back. And it's like, people just don't do this. Social security numbers, SSNs are not unique. And, and even more dangerous, you know, th- there's this notion that, that if you start doing the numbers, if you start doing the math, yeah. particularly the way SSNs are, are broken down, you know, you're very quickly going to run into a situation where, you know, the, the country as a whole is going to run into a situation where we run out of social security numbers. Yeah, it's only eight digits. Yeah, I mean, we could go to, uh, I suppose we could go to, uh, uh, like, hexadecimal. Yeah, GUIDs. Everybody needs a GUID. <laughs> uh, what's your <laughs> what's your SSN? It's, oh, wait a minute, write this down. <laughs> and for F, capital F, uh, CC197, yeah. And doesn't the Social Security card read this number is not you should not be used as a form of identification right on the card? It used to. 
Yeah. It doesn't now. And and you're supposed to keep it private. It's supposed oh, yeah. to be a number between you and the government. And, you know, here's the funny thing that's happened is, you know, people will ask you to confirm the last four digits of your social. Apparently, now, the social security numbers only have four digits. Because everybody only needs four digits to identify you, then all you need to know is the last four digits of somebody's social in order to cop their identity, over the phone well, anyway. You know, at least to a limited degree, right? I mean, there's there's a bit of social engineering that has to go on there as well to convince the person on the other end of the phone that you are, in fact, the same person, you know. And, but, I mean, the other thing, one of the other things that's that's really endemic in the idea of using a social security number as any form of identification is, you know, all the rest of the world doesn't matter, right? Right. Because it's not yeah, like, true. you know, it's not like Canadians have social security numbers. Right. Uh, or, or maybe we, we do force you to get, so what is, what is the story, Richard? Do we force Canadians to get social security numbers? Nope. We have our own. Yeah. We have social yeah. insurance but numbers. But they're not eight-digit numbers, are they? Nope. They're different. Yep. So there you go. So there's an implicit, you know, American bias in some of this as well. And it just... I remember having this conversation with, you know, a project manager, uh, in, in, you know, the late nineties, you know, around the, the perils of using social security numbers, uh, as, as any sort of identifier. And, you know, here we are 15, 20 years later, and I'm still having this same conversation. It's like, people stop, just stop. This is, this is a terrible idea. Don't do this. You can put it as a column inside there. But for crying out loud, you know, don't use it as an identifier. Don't use it as a primary key, for God's sakes. Um, and yeah, I would love, I would love to say, Carl, yeah, you're right. This is a historical lesson. All you young kids, don't do this. This is a today lesson. This is something that that I, I run into companies that are learning this lesson now. It's like, yeah. Well, Richard, this is a good time to stop for our mid. Uh, show break and oh. it's that happy time i love it yeah it's time to give away a telerik ultimate collection to a lucky member of the dot rocks fan club and today's winner is mike minatillo oh congratulations mike regular uh, commenter on the website not too. only that but i remember he calls himself musical mike he is a musician and uh, has been a huge fan of the show for years so congratulations mike golf clap for you and what did he win well, he went a Telerik Ultimate Collection. Awesome. $2,000 worth of stuff. It's actually $7,000 worth of stuff, but they sell it for two. It's basically everything Telerik does. So you got it. Congratulations. And if you want to win a Telerik Ultimate Collection or another prize, like a trip to a conference or maybe even the annual $5,000 technology giveaway, which we're going to have, uh, we're going to draw for in December, handpicked high-tech stuff from Richard and I. We don't know exactly what it'll be, but it'll be a great Christmas present for you. <laughs> from us to you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to building it. Yeah, so if you're interested, go to .netrocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, just fill out a few questions, and that's all. It's free. Wow. Yeah. I don't even get Christmas gifts from Richard. No. Yeah. No. Hey, yeah. Ted. Yeah. You know, one of the things you're known for is the whole Vietnam ORM thing. <laughs> but I got to think the no sequel movement has really kind of validated that position, hasn't it? That just, you know, the way to get rid of the ORM problem, get rid of the RM part. <laughs> well, you know, and, and it, it's, it's kind of validated it and it's, it's kind of creating its own, uh, you know, impedance mismatch problem 
because I keep running into people who are saying things like, you know, MongoDB is great for object languages, right? Mongo is your object data store. Right. And, you know, Couch is your data store and Cassandra is, you know, and it's like, guys, look, part of the, part of the whole, you know, Vietnam analogy was, was realizing that, you know, there's an object relational impedance mismatch, that data has a shape to it. Right. And that, you know, trying to pound data from one shape to another requires a non-trivial amount of effort. And it really wasn't about objects and relations. It was about this impedance mismatch. It was about the fact that these shapes need to be pounded into different shapes. Mongo and Couch are a different shape to data as well. They're, they're a document-oriented data store. Right. And you get into Neo4j. It's a graph-oriented data store. So just a different decomposition process. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, in one sense, you know, there's validation there that says, you know what, the relational form of storing data was not the last data form that we will ever need, right? I mean, God doesn't think in relations. God doesn't think in objects either, by the way. But, but that's, <laughs> You speak for God now, Ted? <laughs> well, you know... He and I converse on a regular basis. He's been calling, asking me about this whole 2000, you know, 2012 election thing, you know, who he really should back. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter anyway, because we're all going to die in December, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Nostradamus has never been wrong, right? <clears throat> anyway, um, him and the Mayans got together, got a little boozed up one night and said, yeah, let's, 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 let's have some fun with our, with our descendants. Pick a number. I saw a great tweet from somebody that said, you know, Dick Clark is dead. Way to go, Mayans. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 the whole thing of it is, you know, data has a shape to it. Yeah. And, and you know, trying to, to convert it from one shape to another incurs a hit. It, it incurs a complexity hit. It incurs a performance hit. You know, the end. There is yeah. no way to avoid that. And, so, yeah, it did nothing to do with being a relational database per se. Anything right. different from the native source is going to have some issues. And right. do you know where that ugliness is? Right. Which the flip side of this says, you know, maybe we want to look at ways of programming beyond uh, objects, too. I mean, you know, maybe we want to look at ways in which we build data structures inside of our languages that are not always object-oriented. And the functional languages... You know, in some respects, if you look at a functional language plus you know, tuples, right, put, put objects on the shelf for the moment. Let's mm -hmm. just build functions and tuples, like, you know, a classic ML Haskell kind of scenario. That actually fits much closer to the relational model of data. And that's, you know, a lot of people, although it's incomprehensible to a lot of developers, how do I program something without objects? I mean, if you look at a lot of what, you know, what websites are, the way websites function, there's not a lot of object stuff there in the initial notion of how HTTP works, right? I issue a request, this this bit of code executes, enhance me a response, it's supposed to be identified, it's it's supposed to be stateless. A lot of this lines up very neatly with the functional style of programming. So, you know, Haskell to drive your website doesn't actually that actually makes a lot of sense. That's not such a bad idea. And yeah. and you know I'm sure I'm going to get thousands of 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 hate mail or dude you're you know what were you smoking that day kinds of responses <laughs> you 
you know, from people who have never known anything other than an object-oriented programming language. Yeah. Right? And and that, to me, is the real crisis, though. That's the real problem, is that we've been so deeply mired in relational databases and object languages that there's a whole generation of programmers who just can't think any other way. Well, it's all they've learned. And it's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, obviously, it's worked to some degree. We've kept at it for quite a while for a reason. But it does feel like we've kind of come to the climax of that model, and we're exploring other models. But that's a conversation we had, in fact, the three of us had, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just even more apparent that we are groping in the dark beyond the relational model and beyond the object model. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. I think that we've found, you know, some, some additional points of light, right? I think we've found some additional areas where we go, you know, some, some new caverns, if you will, um, that, that we're looking around and going, wow, this is pretty cool, right? I hear, you know, I, you, you talk to the Mongo folks and, and you definitely, they've got a number of very, very strong success stories where people found that Mongo's document-oriented model works better than a relational model. And you talk to the Neo4j folks, right? You get uh, Ian Robinson and Jim Weber on the phone. And if you haven't interviewed those guys, by the way, those are two guys that, that you definitely should talk to. For sure. Talk about Neo4j and graph-oriented databases and the value inherent in that. And a lot of the things that we see Facebook doing in terms of the social graph would not really be possible if they didn't have a data store that was really geared towards being able to move through these, you know, acyclic graphs and so forth. Um, you know, there are some really compelling uh, win stories that that are around this different shape of data. So I think we are starting to emerge out of the relational dark ages, as as Neil Ford once put it. Huh. Um, it's not to say relational databases are bad. You have to throw that caveat in. They yeah. store relations particularly well. But when the stuff you're dealing with isn't relational, why why force it to be in that shape? Just yeah. Well, and more importantly, force it to be in that shape every time somebody clicks a button on your form. Exactly. You know, yeah. there there is merit to relational databases from a reporting perspective, but you don't need to put that reshaping of data into the pipeline. You can do it on the back end. Exactly. And and this was one of the things that I got really kind of excited about with respect to the whole services story, because if, as we were talking about five to seven years ago, if you're going to, in fact, put services in front of everything, if the service is going to be your interface to whatever it is you're working with, now the actual data storage becomes an implementation detail. This is this is the thing where the relational database world I think has done us grievous harm is that that it made it very easy to use the database as a point of integration, right? One of the reasons why companies are extremely reluctant to a 
adopt any other sort of data storage format is because they're saying, well, how are all these other applications going to get to it? Right. Right. And it's like they don't. They go through the well-defined service interface to get to that because, you know what, at the end of the day, that's actually the better way of doing things. You take a strong coupling when I have to know about the database schema in order to write the code inside of, of, of my code. This is part of the reason why people like domain objects because it, it again, provides that, that, that degree of decoupling. Um, but you can achieve that through services. I mean, at, you know, data storage really should be an implementation detail. The end. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a secondary thing, actually. But, I, you know, the IT guys, and I'll put my IT hat on here for a sec, ask fair questions like sure. things like transactional integrity, ACID, you know, the rules around how do we know this data is actually stored, consistent, and reliable. And you need to be able to answer those questions. And the IT guys need to also be prepared to answer the questions back around why. Yeah. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a services engagement right now uh, through NewDesic. Um, you know, I'm basically going into a company and they're asking the question, okay, we don't currently have a services based approach. You know, we need one. And I'm asking, why do you need one? And they're saying, well, I mean, we, we want these other qualities, right? When the IT guy says we need to have transactional integrity, it is a fair question to ask why? Because there are a lot of places where we don't need full transactional integrity. I'm with you. And there's lots of places where we're using relational databases and undermining the transactional tra- integrity through tricks oh, yeah. like cra- caching. You know, just because it's relational and you know it has ACID, the fact that you buffered everything in a block of memory on a different machine ahead of time and that's what you're fetching your data from, tell me where your transactional integrity is now. Right, right. Yeah, there's, there's clearly a difference between a business transaction and a database transaction you know, there's there's this notion of a logical transactional integrity, which can be accomplished with data stores that don't have full ACID transactional integrity, and you can break, you know, logical transactional integrity even with ACID. I mean, it all has to do with with you know how you view the actions that that people are carrying out, how you implement that, and so on and so forth. I mean, in in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like. You know, programmers kind of said, okay, cool, the database is going to handle all of the data storage stuff, and I can stop thinking about this problem. Right. Right. And I think we did. And, and you know, what NoSQL is doing is telling us that we need to start thinking about it again, except I'm hearing people making the same mistake, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you should always ditch the relational database, and you should only use Mongo. And it's like, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Same problem again. And I I think that just goes back to reactionary kind of thinking. It's It's dogma. Yeah, it is. Dogma is easy. And the belief in the one right way. Right. And that's never going to work. You really got to think your way through these things. Well, Ted, thanks. It's always good to talk to you. And uh, thanks again. Good to be here. I missed you guys. Yeah, we missed you you too. (laughs) Sorry I didn't make your party. I had some stuff going on here. But I heard it, I heard it was epic. It was epic. It was <laughs> epic. Um, the uh, the MVP Summit party had I think two hundred people there. Wow. Um, and um, yeah, I mean it was great. Um, you know, Charlotte, you know, went all out on the food, and I have to give props to the wives um, for helping out, specifically Debbie Corbin, uh, David Corbin's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, she is an amazing cook, and uh, she in fact. Um, she gave more 
than 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 everybody else combined, including Charlotte, because uh, Debbie actually um, she sacrificed some blood. Uh, she she accidentally sliced open her wrist. Whoa! I had to. Yeah, yeah. Well, she bought a brand new knife set. Oh, I don't want to hear that. Oh, that's horrible. Well, it looked worse than it was. I drove her down to the emergency clinic. She got, I think, twelve stitches, and wow. she came back and was cooking within a half an hour. That's a good oh, knife. That's good. Yeah, it was a very good knife. Um, <laughs> but, well, thanks, but, Dad. Yeah, yeah thanks I mean, a lot. just you know, she, um, um, you know, she gets she gets props from me uh, for going above and beyond the call of duty. All right, Ted. Well, come back again, and until then, we'll see you on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a